Good afternoon and welcome to the 174th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we have a discussion of COVID-19 memorials with Chris Kotcher, Joanna Hutchinson, Catherine Fugey, and Madeline Fugey. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, November 20th, 2020, there are 1,365,612 deaths from COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 11,766,529 cases in the United States, up from 11,647,930 reported yesterday. There are now a total of 253,064 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States. That's up from 251,756 reported yesterday. Yet another day with well more than 1,000 deaths day to day. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reaching, reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, Lost to Coronavirus, Captured in 9-11 Photo. Oh my God, that's me. Author of this is Jorge Milan. This appeared in the Palm Beach Post July 4th. You probably never met Stephen Cooper, but chances are you've seen him before. On September 11, 2001, Cooper was photographed fleeing smoke and debris as the South Tower of the World Trade Center crumbled just a block away. The photo, captured by an Associated Press photographer, was published in newspapers and magazines all over the world and has been seen by many others at the 9-11 Memorial Museum in New York. He didn't even know the photograph was taken, said Janet Rashes. Cooper's partner for 33 years. All of a sudden, he's looking in Time Magazine one day and he sees himself and says, oh my God, that's me. He was amazed, couldn't believe it. Cooper, an electrical engineer from New York who lived part-time in the Delray Beach area, died March 28th at Delray Medical Center due to coronavirus. He was 78. Rashes said Cooper was on his way to deliver documents near the World Trade Center, unaware of exactly what had taken place that morning, when he heard a police officer yell, you have to run. The photo shows Cooper at the age of 60 with a manila envelope tucked under his left arm and several other men in a desperate sprint as a massive wall of debris from the collapsing tower races up behind them. Cooper managed to escape into a nearby subway station. Every year on September 11, he would go looking for the magazine and say, look, it's here again, said Jessica Rashes, Cooper's 27-year-old daughter, he would bring it to family barbecues, parties, anywhere he could show it off. Susan Gould, a longtime friend, said Cooper was proud of the photo, purchasing multiple copies 
of time and handing them out like a calling card. She said Cooper shrank a copy of the photo, laminated it, and kept it in his wallet. Stephen was a character, Gould said. Suzanne Plunkett, the Associated Press photographer who snapped the shot, has written that she's been in touch with two of the people in the photo, but Cooper was not among them. It is a shame I was never aware of the identity of Mr. Cooper, Plunkett wrote after his death in an email to the Palm Beach Post. While Cooper made the wise decision to flee trouble on September 11, that was not in his nature, Janet Rashes said. He was a fighter, she said. That spirit was manifested in the local politics of Edgemere, New York, a struggling neighborhood in the borough of Queens on the Rockaway Peninsula, where Cooper owned a home much of his life. Edgemere is mostly black and Hispanic, and Cooper was one of its few white residents. Rashes said Cooper battled to keep the area from being dumped on with unwanted projects like landfills, while he served as president of the Frank Avenue Civic Association, a community group founded in 1926. He didn't get too far very often, Rashes said, sort of a Don Quixote, but the people really liked him because he was there to speak for them. Cooper, who worked many years for the New York City Transit Authority, was born in the Bronx and based stateside with the Army during the Vietnam War. He met Rashes at a 4th of July barbecue in 1987 at age 46. Although the couple never married, they remained together until his death in March placing him among the 138 people who died in Palm Beach County in the first month of the pandemic. In 1993, Cooper and Rashes adopted Jessica from Guatemala. Rashes said Cooper had dealt with health issues after a fall last year, eventually needing brain surgery in October. He spent more than two months hospitalized or in a rehabilitation center after surgery. Cooper began having more health issues in early March after joining Rashes at their apartment in the Kings Point community of Delray Beach. At that point, the coronavirus was being spoken of, but the people at the hospital weren't wearing masks, Rashes said. Cooper was originally diagnosed with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Paramedics picked him up on March 23rd, Rashes said. That's the last time I saw him. He died five days later. Okay, we're going to turn to our conversation today. I have so many wonderful guests today. I'm really excited for this conversation. Let me introduce a couple of them to you first, and then we'll bring out a couple more here in just a few minutes. Chris Kotcher is the founder and executive director of COVID Survivors for Change. He's also the co-creator of a project, National COVID-19 Remembrance, an art installation and memorial to victims of COVID-19 that involved 20,000 empty seats on the ellipse in Washington, D.C., and several statewide remembrance events, also featuring empty chairs. He previously launched and led the Everytown Survivor Network, a part of Everytown for Gun Safety, which is the nation's largest community of gun violence survivors working together to end gun violence. Let me also introduce Joanna Hutchinson. Based in West Philly, Joanna is a part-time sculptor, avid crafter, and enjoys a career in finance. Joanna is the artist behind the project 100,000 Folds, a community sculpture project honoring COVID victims in the United States and worldwide. She likes bringing people together for friendship, community, and art making. 100,000 Folds is a way for the artist and others to mourn and reflect around the coronavirus crisis. Joanna and Chris, thank you so much for joining me today on COVID Calls. Thanks, Scott, for having me. Same. Thank you for having me. 
So I'd like to start the way I usually do, just to find out where you're calling from and actually what the pandemic is looking like there today. Joanna, can I start with you, please? Yes, I am calling from Philadelphia. And as in many parts of the country, the COVID numbers are at an all-time high here in Philadelphia. Um, our city has recently announced um, additional stay-home orders. Uh, they've closed indoor dining and restaurants and high schools and colleges have gone completely online. Um, we also have uh, indoor, indoor gatherings are not permitted at this time. Um, so we're really under some new restrictions, which I uh, am relieved to hear about because the numbers are just skyrocketing. One of the things I'm gonna talk with everybody about, um, but ask you first, Joanna, just based on what you were saying, um, it seems like it must be so hard. I mean, you're building a social network to do a, an art project. You've done that entirely from your home? I have. I, um, I have been, um, so my project is called 100,000 Folds. It's a collaborative origami sculpture project whereby participants are folding origami units to represent the first 100,000 COVID deaths in the United States. Um, this project has been a huge undertaking for me and I'm doing uh, shipping paper to participants nationwide and throughout the world. And, and yes, I have done it all from my home here in West Philly. Um, I have had a few uh, volunteers that have helped me out on my porch, but as it's getting colder um, and the COVID numbers are just so high, I have you know, really shut down who I'm seeing even from a distance. So it's, it's, it's getting harder to keep going. All right, well, thank you for that. We're going to find out much more about that project in a second. Let me bring um, Chris in. Chris, where are you calling from, and uh, how's the pandemic there? Sure. So I'm calling from Sunnyside, which is in Queens, New York City. So um, and part of the reason uh, why I wanted to start um, COVID Survivors for Change is just because my community um, and the, so many of the families in my neighborhood were really devastated by the pandemic in that first initial awful wave um, back in March, April, and May. Um, and so, you know, we've really... Um, adapted um, and we've, we're seeing the numbers spike here as well, like everywhere else. Um, thankfully, they're not as severe, um, I think, as some of the other places um, across the country and certainly less than it was um, earlier this year, but still, you know, concerning and terrifying. Um, and, you know, thankfully, I think people are adjusting their behaviors. Um, so, uh, so far, so good. One of the things that you know, so many guests I've talked to from New York, they will, um, just offer the harsh reminder of the sounds of the ambulances from March and April. Is that, are you back to that now? No, I, I don't, you know, I really hope that both between the additional knowledge that we have now with our, you know, government, um, the state and local government, um, you know, staying further ahead of the curve um, this time around and people just being more um, aware of the consequences and how deadly um, and disruptive this is. Um, I hope that we don't go back there. Um, it was a terrifying, terrifying time. And, you know, I live on, uh, you know, my, my bedroom overlooks um, one of the, uh, not major streets, but one of the more, more main thoroughfares in my community. And it was just day and night and terrifying. And, you know, you live in New York, you're used to noise. 
Um, you know, my daughters um, sleep through ambulances, you know, kids screaming outside the window. Um, we're used to a lot of noise here, but I don't think I will ever forget what that sound did like and how frequently it sounded throughout the day and more importantly, you know, throughout the night. I lived in Astoria, Queens for years and years, yeah. so I know exactly where you are and, and can picture it entirely. And there's a hospital in the center of that neighborhood. And I've thought often about um, uh, the toll on that neighborhood and that in that hospital. Chris, let me stay with you um, first. Can you tell me a little bit about the COVID Survivors for Change, how you got the idea? Yeah, sure. So I, uh, like I said, I mean, I, you know, I saw firsthand the families in my neighborhood that have been impacted. Um, thankfully, I have not been impacted myself or anyone in my immediate family, but I, you know, certainly know, uh, you know, families in the neighborhood. And like I said, just hearing um, and seeing how many people have been impacted. Um, but I, prior to this, I worked for close to a decade um, with survivors of gun violence, like as you mentioned, the, uh, with the Evertown Survivor Network. Um, and from that, I saw two things that really um, stayed with me. One is that stories can really transform and unlock what is possible um, for change in a social movement. Um, and second, that there is a lot of trauma that goes along with all this, um, and a lot of it um, goes unaddressed, and whether that's because of stigma or lack of resources or access to resources or knowledge that some of the resources exist. Um, but I sort of saw firsthand how important it is to build those programs and resources for people. Um, and then if you support folks, um, in sharing their stories, how um, how much can be accomplished and how much can shift when you understand and can you can see personally, you know, just like the story that you, sh you shared at the, at the start of this, um, to understand what loss looks like. And I think, you know, in some ways the numbers um, are even more severe, obviously, than with gun violence. Um, but in the same, but they're similar in the sense that they are. It's it's such an, an enormous scale that it's almost difficult to comprehend. Um, but you can comprehend what one story is, what one uh, li life loss, um, what one father, mother, brother, uh, you know, sister, um, child, what what one person who has been impacted can look like. And I think you know, hearing those individual stories really helps people understand. And so we started. You know, I started COVID Survivors for Change because I wanted Americans to hear those stories about people who have been directly impacted. Um, I wanted to build a network of support um, to provide um, the trauma-informed resources and programs and trainings to the families, uh, you know, just like we had done with, uh, with gun violence. Um, and so that was really the impetus behind creating this program. So it's interesting to me that the news stories and the art projects you've been doing with the empty chair is evocative, of course, of, of people who've died. And, but the organization is held together um, by this idea of the, the wisdom of the survivor, which yeah, I- Yeah, and I think, you know, I think that, uh, you know, I think that, um, and, you know, from gun violence, right, we, um, people, you know, going back 10, 20 years, um, the language that was used was around um, being someone, you know, as a victim, right? That was what in the gun violence space, you're a victim, even that's what some of the language that is written into federal statute. Um, and in working with families who have been impacted, they really said, you know, um, we want to take a more empowered stance. We want to we want to take control of this awful thing that happened to us by speaking out, um, by advocating for change. And so that was how we landed on Survivor. And so when we say Survivor, uh, we mean someone who has been impacted, whether that is um, you know, in the gun violence space, someone who even has, you know, has witnessed an act of gun violence, um, has been wounded themselves or has has had a loved one taken. Um, and that's similar here, which is that if you have had, you know, a serious, um, if you've been seriously impacted by the pandemic and you are living with serious after effects, you've lost a loved one, um, this is an organization that is here for you and to uh, lift up all those stories. And I think sometimes, you know, we hear, we tend to hear a certain kind of story. It's, it's this, 
um, this narrative that we hear over and over or that narrative. Um, and I think what's really important is that we, we see the full tapestry of all the different ways that people are impacted. And obviously, along this with pandemic as well is, is all the economic loss and the right. disruption of life um, and the kids who aren't able to go to school and all the other things that um, we are all living with. Um, but, to, but to build as, as, as broadly as possible um, the, the tapestry of stories so that people really understand all the different ways, um, even within a, within a singular family, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, people in a singular family um, can experience loss differently or can, can experience the illness. And what's different here too is that, um, you know, as the pandemic, you know, sort of has in some families has just ripped through an entire family and multiple people have been, uh, have had COVID, multiple people have lost. And so even as, you know, you're dealing with your own uh, you know, illness and recovery, you know, you're also mourning possibly the, the life of someone in your family. So it's just, it's, it's so compounded mm -hmm. and complicated here, um, unlike almost anything, nothing that I've seen before. I keep a copy, uh, actually it's not in the frame right now. I keep a copy of this book close at hand always. Yeah. Robert J. Lifton's book, Death in Life. Robert's been a mentor to me and he was a guest on COVID calls and he's one of many people who's written powerfully over the years about the, what he's called the wisdom of the survivor. Um, he wrote about, um, you know, survivors, Auschwitz, he wrote about Hiroshima survivors. And I wonder, you know, sort of bring in one of Lifton's key observations, which is there is a special knowledge um, that survivors have, which sometimes they keep hidden and buried in themselves because there may be social stigma attached. At other times, they become um, spokesmen, spokeswomen, and they become central political figures in their time. It's probably too early to say, but your organization and the people you're interacting with fit very much into that narrative and that analysis that Lifton has put forward with us to think about. Yeah, and I, you know, I think that you, know, you start from a place of, um, what do people want to share about what they have experienced? Um, and that's the most important, right? It's their story, um, it's their authentic voice. And so I, my role here is, is simply to support them, sharing their story, elevating their voice, whatever feels true to them. And so for some people, um, that can be, you know, uh, uh, speaking out in public speaking for others that can look differently for some people, you know, running for office is a whole, there's a whole gamut and whole um, slew of different ways that people find their voice. But for me, the, that most powerful moment is when you see someone begin to understand that their voice carries more power than they thought or they assumed um, when they realize that people are listening to them. Um, and you, like you said, the stigma, right. And whether that is uh, the stigma, um, that goes along with you know how people um, were were diagnosed or or even you know stigma of not wanting to share publicly or because it's political or or has been made political I should say um, but whatever that is but but for people to understand that that story and their voice um, has a role not just in how they see themselves but also what they could the change that they can bring about um, in the world more broadly in their community um, is one of the most powerful things I have ever been a part of and it's a true. I'm honored to be on this journey with families who have been impacted um, to help them speak out and to help them find out, find what is that place um, that they want to use their voice to make change in the world. So Joanna, just to bring you back into this, can you tell us a little bit more of you? We just started to talk at the beginning about, you know, the project. Um, say a little bit more about the scale of it and how it came to you. Sure. So I started uh, 100,000 folds 
uh, in May, when the COVID numbers were reaching 100,000 deaths in the United States, and it was kind of a dark, quiet time, um, I think for me and for many people. And I felt like I was in mourning, um, although I'm not impacted personally in my immediate family by COVID. Um, I I just felt like like this was a you know uh, I'm. I'm stumbling here because it's just such a big feeling, but um, I just felt like, you know, the COVID deaths reaching 100,000 was so grand and so great that I couldn't understand it mm-hmm. in a way. Uh, I I was grasping to, you know, just get my head around what that meant. You know, I thought about who I knew and who I love, and I, I you know, I will never know 100,000 people in my life. And now the number, uh, the death toll has risen so much higher than that. I'll, you know, I'll never know 250,000 people. Um, so I really wanted to find a way to understand the gravity of the situation and the understand the gravity of these, this death toll, um, here in the United States and also worldwide. So that's why I started the 100,000 folds. I, I wanted to do something to remember each of those people, those first 100,000 people, um, something to honor them, something symbolic of their suffering and the suffering of their loved ones. Um, So that's why I started this project. And so each of these 100,000 are represented by a piece of origami. And um, it's a community uh, sculpture project. We have over 250 participants who are folding paper for this project. And it really brings peace to my life to know that others um, are gathering for the same purpose, to to remember, to honor, to respect those that we've lost. Um, so that's really the, the the basis for the project is in mourning. Well, I want to find out a little bit more from you about the the craft of it. Uh, is it was this already origami? I mean, you're you're an artist, so is this already a practice you were you were doing? But then you decide to take on the idea that you're going to train a hundred thousand people to to fold. I mean, there's a sort of there's such a strong collectivity in that, which I am is so moving. But it also that's a lot of work. It, it is, and I I chose a simple design for the origami. It's a I'll show you one. It's a a small triangle unit, and um, I learned how to make these units a few years ago, and I just considered them um, very beautiful and also something that I thought many people could learn how to do. Um, so I. I I set out to spread the word for the project and teach my friends and family how to make these units. But really, it's turned into something that has united me with so many people across the world um, in different artist communities, paper communities, and then just people that are impacted by the virus. Uh, I get people um, to participate and, um, and, and they want to honor their loved ones. Oh, it's really wonderful. 
The project also brings to mind Sadako Sasaki, the story of a Japanese uh, atomic bomb survivor who died, you and I were talking before the broadcast, she died in 1955 at age 12. Can you say a little bit about her story and how that tradition informed you? Sure, yeah, I, um, I read Sadako in the Thousand Paper Cranes as a child. And um, of course I set out to uh, fold a thousand paper cranes myself as a little girl. Um, and I, I just find that origami is very beautiful and um, there's something wonderful about it that it's, it's simple, it's kind of rhythmic to make the folds and it's, it's just something that I really enjoy and I thought that others would find solace in it as well. I'm going to bring in our next guests now, and let me introduce them to you. Hi. Hi. This is uh, Madeline Fugay, who is 13 years old, an eighth grade student at the Buckley School in Sherman Oaks, California. And let me just tell you a little bit about Madeline. When she was in seventh grade, she was given a community action project with the theme, Young Changemakers in a COVID-19 World. And after hearing stories from her mom, Catherine, who we will introduce in a second, um, who worked on the AIDS Memorial Quilt in the 80s and told her healing, how healing it was at the time, Madeline created the COVID Memorial Quilt to honor and remember all those who've died of COVID-19. Word's been spreading about the COVID Memorial Quilt. And Madeline has now received over 100 memorial squares from the US and from around the world and a big article in National Geographic uh, that came up, I think today or yesterday, which also profiles her work. And let me also introduce Catherine Fugay, who's a screenwriter best known for creating, writing, and executive producing the TV series Army Wives. She was honored to work with First Lady Michelle Obama and Dr. Jill Biden on the Joining Forces campaign, shining a light on the sacrifices of our military families. Catherine served eight years on the board of directors of the Writers Guild of America West and she is Madeline's mom. Welcome, Madeline, and welcome, Catherine, to COVID Calls. Thanks for making time and running straight from school, Madeline? Yes, I just got out of school a couple minutes ago. And is that like in the other room, or is that, do you actually go get a chance to go to school? No, I don't get a chance to go to school just yet. Um, my school is down the hall. <laughs> 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 uh, I can completely 100% sympathize with that at my house. We have, uh, I run an off, I run a podcast studio and a history department out of one room. Uh, I have one son in a third grade in another room and another in seventh grade, another room. And we have a ping pong academy out in the garage in the back. Um, Madeline, tell us a little bit about your project. Well, um, the COVID Memorial Quilt is something to, help people heal because because of the pandemic there's been no opportunities for public mourning so people haven't really had a chance to have funerals and or just like really accept these people are gone so the quilt is really just to make 
pe- help people under help people heal through this entire this entire pandemic and quarantine. Catherine, um, the AIDS quilt is clearly a touchstone here. Could you tell us a little bit about the conversations you and Madeline had about the quilt? Sure. Uh, first of all, thank you for having us. And uh, Chris and Joanna, your stories are both very impactful to me. And I just applaud you and thank you for what you're doing. It's nice to know that there's so many helpers, as Fred Rogers would say. It's always look for the helpers. Um, what what I did is I worked at the AIDS Memorial Quilt in my, in my early 20s. I was a young social justice activist and we felt people weren't listening or honoring so many deaths. So we found a way to get attention but it was also pretty magical at the time by making someone's name and making them real and remembering this piece of fabric is a person who had a family and people who loved them. And that that helped us at the time. And when she received her assignment for the community action project, you know, there's many things you can do, but she was struggling with an idea. She's a sewer. She's an artist herself. She creates clothes. She's a costume designer. And I said, well, one thing we did in the 80s was this, this quilt. And she immediately latched onto it and said, well, why don't we do that? <laughs> why do we do that? So we we did reach out to the AIDS Memorial Quilt that there's a board and we reached out, we spoke to Cleve Jones, who is the oh, creator wow. of the quilt. Uh, he Great. had a private phone call with Madeline and you know it's up to her to reveal that conversation. But what he said to me is, you know, I did so, I mean, he's a man in his 60s now and still an activist and he said, it's just very moving to know that work I did back then has affected a 13 year old girl and she's carrying that torch forward, so. Madeline, do you wanna tell us a, a little bit more about that conversation? I've, I've, uh, mm-hmm. I have a great desire to have Cleve Jones come on COVID calls and I'm still working on that, but um, I obviously understand why he would wanna to talk to you um, as a young person, because young people right now, from my point of view, are carrying this country. I think they're demonstrating the the kind of courage that we all need to take uh, a, a cue from. You want to tell us a little bit about what that discussion was like, and I also want to hear like who can participate and how. Well, it was a very wonderful discussion. Um, he has a great sense of humor, and um, it was really nice to talk to someone who had actually done something very similar to what I'm doing now. So it was almost like having a mentor to talk to and ask for advice. So Madeline, tell us a little bit about the dynamics of the project. Does somebody have to know how to quilt to participate? Because that would leave me out, unfortunately. (laughs) No, you can still participate, it's okay. Um, You don't have to know how to sew to make a panel. Really, the panel can be made from anything that's fabric. We make from the person's favorite T-shirt. It can be like a flag. Um, you can even just take like um, a piece of cloth and draw on it, uh, and draw like pictures or write words that represent that person. It can really be anything. So then people send you the squares, and you're assembling them. Yes. Where do you do that? Down the hall. <laughs> okay. What do you what do your friends think about this project? Well, um, I quite honestly, I don't really talk to my friends very often about the project, but I do know they support me. Oh, there we go. Uh, we've seen a little bit of what the you want to show us what the panel looks like. 
this is what an example is just a piece of material that someone with a sharpie just colored and drew on things to represent the person that they've lost things they liked who they were then you have someone who obviously does know how to embroider and we also have pictures like this where this this man who's being honored james you know he, there's a he obviously was a baseball fan he was in the air force the names mm. of his children so people find all sorts of ways to represent someone they love we even have people who have printed out a picture of them and made an iron-on which you can buy at a store you just take a photo iron on the photo here's a, a cleaner example of that in that it's just one big photo of this beautiful woman who's been lost mm. so that's what we're saying as far as you don't have to know how to sew We've had people actually send us a letter saying, this is who they were. Can you do this for me? And we know that they're grieving and they're in pain. And we're so happy to take that up and go from there. And Madeline's going to create it from scratch for them based on things they've told her. That's great. Wow. Well, um, more questions for you in just a minute. I want to come back to Chris for a second. Um, you know, something that, that Madeline said really struck me. Chris, which is one of the main themes we're grappling with this year, not only the scale of it, and, and that's what Joanna was talking about, just how to kind of come to grips with 100,000, 200, 250 and more. But we live in, I don't know how to say this, we live in strange political times. We live in times in which people cynically use disaster and loss politically. And I wanted to ask you this first, because I know your background um, with every town, that something that when I was growing up, something like grieving a disaster, grieving a loss, was something that was bonding. It was uniting. Even up to September 11, and I lived in New York at that time, people didn't ask each other what their politics were. It's not like politics went away, but there was a moment of bonding and reconciliation and healing. And I feel like we've lost that to a certain extent in America. Beside all the positivity in this conversation, there is something that's happening right now in which the process of grieving, to my mind, has not only been um, stalled because of the difficulty of the virus, people can't get into the hospitals, people can't have funerals, but also this problem of COVID denial or, or saying it's not as bad as, as what you're hearing. Um, and that's really distressing to me. And I wonder, so I wanna bring that back to this, the work you're doing, because I do think these memorials, they're not meant to be necessarily political, but some people perceive them to be political. And at the same time, maybe they should be. And maybe that's just the moment we're in. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I would say a couple of things. I think that, um, you know, we certainly live in exceptional times. I hope it's temporary. Um, you know, people seem to be sort of permanently in their corners. Um, but I, you know, I was in New York City also on 9-11, um, and uh, I do hope that uh, the political times that, that are happening now and the way that this has been politicized does recede um, under new leadership. Um, I do think that, you know, like what you said, uh, you know, all, all of this, the, the denial, um, the, well, what was wrong with them? Did they have a, you know, they must have had a pre-existing condition. And I think, you know, I always try to assume the best in people. Um, it's a little naive, but but I think for some people it's protective, right? It's it's well, I don't want to think that this can happen to me. I can't. I don't want to think that this this enormous thing 
you know, I think back back to my experience in gun violence, right? There must have been something that you know you were unlucky and and were impacted by gun violence, and I'm we're both living our lives, and that hasn't happened to me. And it has to be something that you're doing and something that I'm not doing because that's a, almost mentally protective for for people. I think one of the ways that you break through that is by sharing the stories mm. and by connecting through not just you know how people die. We talk a lot about um, how people die, um, but when we talk about how people lived right and how they are living um, for people that are, are are still experiencing covid or gun violence um i think we 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 connect through common humanity and the commonality that we all share um and so that's really the goal of what the work that i do which is let's talk about what we have in common and you know look there are people that um no matter what you say or who you talk to or how you talk or you know that there are people that are not going to uh, make that connection but i think that that you know um even if you want to bring this into politics or, or advocacy you know politics is not a game of 100%. You know, politics is, are you convincing a majority of people, um, a majority of elected officials, a majority of the public, a majority of city commissioners, a majority of, you know, the school board, whatever it is, um, to go along with your viewpoint. So you don't have to win over everyone. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the way the way that you win the most people is by leading with what we have in common, by talking about stories, um, by, you know, by working with, um, you know, the families who have the courage um, to be vulnerable, to share with, you know, to lead with empathy, um, and to and to share what you know the what the worst thing that has happened to them, um, the courage that it takes to do that um, is is really um, you know almost inhuman. And so you know, let's start and sit in that space, which is people are sharing, um, they're grieving, um, they've lost something, um, and they are go tapping into themselves and tapping into their family and tapping into their community to share that in a way that we can forge a better and stronger future. And that will reach some people, it won't reach everyone, and that's okay. It's not, I mean, not, not say it's not okay, um, but I think we need to focus on the way that we can we can actually connect and um, and bring people into that common shared purpose. I guess I wanna bring that same question back to Madeline, to you and to Catherine. You know, the at the time that the AIDS quilt started, um, we were not having an open discussion about suffering from AIDS in the United States. And I feel like right now we're not having as full of a discussion about COVID suffering as we, as we should have. How do you think about the, the quilt project in that, in that way? In what sense, I guess, does it force people to think, or do you hope it forces people to think a little bit about our times? Well, I'll answer the first, and then I'll have Madeline speak to what she's, you know, how how she feels today about it. During what I find interesting is, in my lifetime, I'm living through a second deadly pandemic from a virus, and and that was in the beginning of both viruses was discounted. Of those people are less than somehow, and they don't matter as much. Whether that was per the perception of their sexuality, they were drug users, they were um, older people, or it's their time anyway. They, had, they weren't healthy. As Chris said, they had underlining conditions. There was a way to discount both viruses by making fellow human beings less than others. And that's very depressing for me to witness twice <laughs> in my lifetime, like I said. What I think is uh, about the political statement of it, the aid, working on the AIDS Memorial Cult was undeniably a political statement. We were trying to get attention to our cause. We were trying to make it not the gay disease or the drug user's disease. We were trying to say, this is disease that can affect anybody. And what in it, when it did is when more people paid attention, when it went wide and a bit more wide stream. Uh, 
and left one particular community. With um, with COVID, we have been asked questions about, you know, is this a political statement? And uh, you know, as we learn, even reading the letters, there's no there's no politics in the virus. It's a virus. It has no political agenda. It doesn't ask what your politics are when it infects you. But some of the most memorable moments are reading letters from nurses. We had a letter from a nurse mm -hmm. saying, you know, uh, I'm, I, I spend my last days holding, uh, spend one's last days holding their hand while they're dying. No one, I don't ask that, the dying person's their politics and they don't ask mine. We're just two yeah. human beings there for the last minute before someone's light goes out. And I'm the person who has to hold that and their own, their own family and friends can't be there for them in the room. And that's very meaningful. So it's a reminder that no one's asking, no one asks an emergency. In 9-11, no one's asking your politics when they're trying to get you out of a burning building. Right. You know, Hurricane Katrina, no one's saying, I'm only going to save people on the rooftops that have my politics. You know, people come together in emergency. And I think for us, we're hoping that'll happen again. You know, but Madeline can ask specifically to the quilt. Do you think I already answered it? Yes. <laughs> I'm so sorry. But I just want to follow up with Madeline on that because um, that back to what I was saying earlier, I mean, in recent years, I mean, the, the progress that people, much of the progress that people had thought was impossible, we'd reached an impasse on climate change discussion. And then here comes Greta. And, you know, the March for Our Lives movement um, around, you know, gun control uh, and gun violence was led by high school students. I mean, I, and as I mentioned earlier, I do think young people are playing an exceptional role right now, um, greater than I've seen in my lifetime, in, in not getting bogged down in is this a Republican or a Democratic thing, but just what's just and what's right. And I guess that's my question for you, Madeline, as you look around at what's going on with COVID-19, clearly you've been moved to act because you're spending a lot of time doing this project. How should our country change? I'm taking notes because when I ask young people this question, I think they have the right answers. The well, um, I can't tell people how to react to a pandemic, but I can say that it is a pandemic that is worth noting because it is dangerous and it does exist. And I'm sorry, I, I'm not really exactly sure how to answer your question. It's a very good one though. You talk about the humanity. Who are we? I suppose, we oh, that's okay, that's actually a good idea, thank you. Um, I guess another way to look at it is that the more we sort of just push aside the amount of people who have died from this virus, the more we begin to sort of lose our humanity of it. And we kind of just forget that these are real people. Well, thanks for that. Joanna, let me bring this to you and talk a little bit about, I mean, if you want to comment on anything that's, that's just been said, um, I think that you're absolutely right, Madeline, that we have to, you know, remember each other as people and and humble ourselves to our humanity. Um, I think that's really the point of many of these 
projects is to 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 remember that we're all we're we're all the same in a way, um, and we 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 want to be unified um, in remembering our loved ones and those who we've lost. I think that that's really the point in many of these um, ideas. And I, I agree that um, although these these projects may seem political at times, and they may be political, um, I I think when it comes to COVID, people are just people are dying, and we need to remember them, and we need to do better in the future. Um, we, I, I think, as our nation, uh, I'm disappointed uh, as to how things have gone with the pandemic um, and it saddens and angers me to know that so many have died um, in my mind so unnecessarily. Joanna, you're aiming for a hundred thousand individual origami pieces. Can you give us an update on where you are with that and then also what will it build to? So th that's a great question, um, Scott. I have sent out about 100,000 uh, pre-cut pieces of red paper. The project is um, in the color of red. And I have received back um, folded units from about 65 participants, which I'm estimating is about 50,000 units so far. I'm still cataloging them and um, measuring them to see how many I have. I get shipments almost every day from participants and their boxes full of folded origami. It's um, it's really wonderful to see the project coming together. How does together. that work? You mean it lands at your doorstep, or? Yeah, you know, I um, here I'll show you one I have next to my desk. I I open the mail and I get I have these boxes. Oh They're come full on, that's amazing. And I have dozens of boxes all over the house, just full of these. Some people stack them beautifully. Some people put them in little baggies. Um, but many times they just come loose, and um. And it's, it's really wonderful to see it come together. And then the next stage of the project is the um, sculptures. So each of these units, these origami, will be built together into two large uh, vessel-shaped sculptures to be displayed to the public. Mm. The, um, the units have uh, sort of built on each other. They have a, 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 a slot on the top, and so you can build them sort of like Legos. And... Um, so that is the plan, is to build two large sculptures. They're, they're gonna be about six feet tall. Um, and um, I'm hoping to display them somewhere in Philadelphia. So then um, people who are undertaking this work are agreeing to fold, they're folding a lot. So you got people all, and do you have a sense of the distribution? Are they mostly in the Philly region or are they all over the country, other countries? You know, that's a great question. I have a, a few um, people, pretty much everywhere. I have a lot of participants nearby, um, but also I have people that are folding paper in, uh, I think it's 30 U.S. states and five international countries. Um, so it really, it's it's really throughout our our, our world. Um, and um, it's it's really wonderful to see every, everybody coming together for this. I, I started this project and I thought I could get a few people to join you know, that, that would be interested in um, honoring the COVID victims, like in the same way that I was with origami. Um, but really the response has been enormous and, um, and wonderful. 
I hope you get a chance to take them to Hiroshima. You know, the the peace park there uh, does have the the cranes, and they're brought there from all over the all over the world. I mean, when we get a chance to break out and and go places, I'm sure that your project will be received there with open arms. Oh, that would be wonderful. Chris, um, so I'm getting some of the logistics on these projects and, and just looking at what you accomplished there on the ellipse in Washington with the 20,000 shares. Talk to us a little bit about that and what, how you do those in other cities and, and how many more cities, what's, what's the goal with all that? Sure. So, I'm, you know, the goal is, I think, to um, like like the amazing other projects that you're hearing about in this during this conversation is to to visually capture the scale of loss. And I think um, when we were trying to think about how do we do that, and we we batted around some concepts. And when we first talked about the chairs, I mean, for me, it really jumped out for two reasons. You know, first is this idea that you know empty seats, people should be sitting in these seats. You know, one one seat you know, in Washington D.C. We we did approximately one seat for every 10 lives taken. Um, and so it, it really represents in a proportional way the lives that have been taken by the pandemic. But secondly, you know, and you've heard, you know, with some of the conversation today, this idea that, you know, we're not able to be together, right? We're not able to uh, mourn together. Um, and the mall, you know, the ellipse in Washington, D.C., that is the place where we as a nation, it is in some ways the emotional center you know, of the nation, and it's where we come to gather, where our memorials are, where we gather um, to remember, to honor, and um, the fact that we couldn't do that in this time was really captured, I think, as well by the empty seats, right? This idea that you would look out and expect to have 20,000 people in person with arms around each other, um, supporting each other, grieving together, and the fact that we weren't able to do that, I think that was another way that the chairs really captured just the way that the pandemic has disrupted even our ability um, to mourn and grieve together as a community and as a nation. Um, and so, like I said, doing that in that, you know, emotional and political center of the nation in front of the White House, on the mall, the um, and then from there, you know, really just grew organically where people were reaching out and saying that was really powerful. We fibers reaching out and saying, you know, I'd love to do this in my community. Some people just uh, organically um, you know, led events like that. And so we really just jumped in wherever we could and in many places we could to help plan and lead. And, um, and most importantly, you know, these were virtual events, but we wanted um, people to be there, you know, the families and people who had been, uh, have survived the pandemic um, to be there in person to share their stories. And so um, obviously, you know, prep being doing it in a way that was safe. Um, and so we were able to connect um, for, you know, remembrance events all around the country. Um, to have you know families there sharing their story directly um, to the folks that were watching virtually. And how are you capturing those stories if, when people are coming? Are you creating a sort of video accompaniment, uh, a transcription accompaniment to these individual actions? We've done two things, and I think um, you know there's something very sacred about just someone's name. I think you know uh, you know and what someone touched on before. I mean, even the idea, right? That that. Uh, this has been made political and partisan and that, um, you know, people feel that they have to share it. They have to, 
speak their story, um, to bring about change. None of this should be necessary. We should be doing what has to be done because we care about each other um, and we care about this country and we want, we want to keep each other safe. Um, and so it's heartbreaking even um, that people feel, oh, well, I need to sh you know, relive and share this, this heartbreaking loss um, in the hope that it does bring about change. Um, but we, you know, we did that, um, like I said, in, in, in several communities um, all around the country. And, and the goal was really um, to have these stories. And so we had both names and photos. So the idea was that there was something very sacred just about someone's name. It's, you know, your primary identifier. Um, and so there's a very sacred tradition about reading the names that we've done uh, in, that we did in gun violence as well. Um, but just the idea of saying someone's name out loud, remembering them, they, they existed. Um, whether or someone you know someone who's still you know living with serious effects from 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 COVID, um, saying their name as well and just um, honoring um, their memory through that, and then also photos, right? You know, the, you know, photo is you know pictures worth a thousand words. Seeing someone, and I think really that's where you get into what I said before. You know how people live their lives, um, and so seeing the photos and seeing family photos and seeing people dressed up, uh, you know, in silly costumes, making silly faces, um, living their lives, loving. Um, the people that are here after they have gone. Um, so we did it both by having a scroll of names and also by um, photo displays so that people could both um, see the names. Um, and, and I think, you know, you see just the diversity all around the country, the name, the age, the place where they lived, um, and really capturing that this is happening in communities. Obviously, it's disproportionately impacting communities of color. Um, but at, and, and at the same time, this is impacting people all over the country. And like someone said before, um, it knows no, you know, political ideology or political party or um, or anything like that. This is impacting and can impact uh, people all across the country. How long does it take to set up 20,000 chairs? <laughs> A long time. Uh, it took us about, let's say, seven or eight hours. We actually did a um, we put a camera up and did a time lapse um to to capture it uh, i feel i feel like that's a beautiful labor i mean the, even thinking about that to me is really just very moving the well, putting up and the taking down of the chairs yeah and, and like what what um catherine madeline and joan said there, there's something that's very um beautiful about the labor that goes into remembering others and and even in some ways remembering people that you have never met right mm -hmm. uh, and helping people remember their loved ones um, and that's really what at the end of the day people want to know that those that have been taken by the pandemic those whose lives are changed forever um, that they will be remembered uh, that their memory will carry forward and that's what we are all doing on this call and and this is the beginning right we are doing all this when we are not able to be together so my hope is that um, you know that the empty seats the empty chairs um, in some way becomes one of the symbols of loss uh, for for COVID in the way that all you know the quilts um, and the folds can as well, um, but that we have, we have a long way to go to truly honor um, the lives that have taken and changed forever, to really truly give people um, the space to, to congregate where we're able to be together safely um, and to, you know, recovering and, and healing from trauma and grief and loss. Um, it's not a one and done. It's not a, well, you have an event, mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you put up a chair, you, you do a fold, you do a quilt. It's a journey that um, that I hope that you know everyone on this call and those that are listening can support the families, um, you know, over the next several years and even decades um, as we help them with that journey. You're each making me think of one of the most profound memorials that I've ever visited, which is in Ansan, South Korea. It's a memorial to the teenagers who died in the Sewol ferry disaster. You may remember uh, several years ago, these were teenagers on their way to. Uh, 
uh, summer camp, basically, um, and the ferry uh, sank and they died. And the classroom itself, their classrooms and their high school were preserved by their parents. And they literally took every desk, every chair, chalkboard, coat rack, and everything. And at every individual desk, the families and friends had made, and this makes me think of your work, Madeline, um, uh, their favorite K-pop bands, their favorite foods, uh, uh, calendars, sports teams, individual mementos that brought something about the life of that person. But also the chair is empty. And there's something very, I don't have the right word. There's something about um, a classroom that's empty because classrooms are special places. Yeah, right. and classrooms are these vibrant, active, social yeah. uh, communities. And the, you know, it's a negative, right? It's the absence of a, the presence of something that is striking. Um, yeah. and really hits you in the gut, you know, even just, I feel that in my gut hearing, hearing you describe it. it, it yeah. And the other, and the other thing about it that I find, and it's very resonant with what each of you are doing is that those families didn't wait. Uh, in South Korea, they still haven't decided what the formal memorial to the Sewol Ferry is. It's a fundamental rupture in their society. And, the, but they still haven't reached a point yet where a sort of a formal memorial can take place. And I, I think that's, that's to me very impressive about each of your projects. None of you have waited around for the formal jury of uh, COVID-19 pandemic uh, architects to come together and design. And I'm sure someday there will be beautiful things in many cities, but you're just doing it. Uh, and I guess Madeline, that's a kind of a question to you as we will be wrapping up here in a second, but how long do you plan to do this? And when your quilt, I, well, I guess my question is, will your quilt be done? Is is it an ever-expanding project? How long do you plan to work on it? Well, really, since the numbers haven't stopped going up, this quilt project is never going to be finished until those numbers freeze, until those people stop dying. And it's just going to keep on going. It doesn't matter how long it takes. I hope that I can get every single person who's died from COVID-19 onto a quilt, onto the quilt. Catherine, just to bring you in on that, I mean, we're at 250,000 plus deaths today. This project could go on for, for a while. The AIDS quilt project, I mean, I'm sort of constantly, when I'm speaking with you, I'm thinking about that ever-expanding project. That's a potential with this, I suppose. I mean, people who don't die of COVID are still going to be impacted by it, just as Chris has been telling us. There's a lot of space in your project for expansion. Right. I, I, I don't think we think about that, quite honestly. When we started the project in April, when the assignment was given to her of last, you know, the same year, when the same, I can't forget, school year. the same, the last school year, but last April, we were at, I think, 72,000 people had died of COVID at that time. And I, I remember so vividly, uh, we were watching the, the evening news and they said, well, the numbers tonight are 72,186 and it, hit Madeline and she just stopped. She says, it's not numbers. They're people who died. Those are people you're talking about. And I think that to me was that almost like that moment when I made the commitment, we're doing this until 
you know, as long as we're needed, we're here because for her to recognize that we were depersonalized, you know, when you dehumanize, you depersonalize, you make it over there, you right. turn them into a number. That event happened in another country or another state or, you know, you look at the, you were bringing up the beautiful exhibit that you, you know, about the fairy. I mean, I remember going to the Holocaust Museum and you're given a picture and that name is pers a person you follow through the exhibit and you find out at the end, did you live or die? So to remember everything that is a personal story is what has the most impact. So the more we personalize these people as we're all doing here on this call and remind you that each number you hear every night, when you look at that number, that's not the lotto. <laughs> that's not about winning the lotto. Those numbers up there on the screen are people and each one of them had a family you know, and a story and they had things they loved and things they didn't love so much, but they all lived and they were a part of our community. I mean, and this is one big community. And so to me, that's, if this is, we're doing this, uh, you know, it, it, until she's 30, we're doing it until she's 30. And I think what would be lovely is if all of us joined together in some sort of traveling exhibit and some sort of representation to show that so many people in different, to me, of three states right here, four states, including Scott, and we're all here talking about how to help people heal. And if we can all come together and find ways that uh, that we can show what we've done, and that inspires other people to go back and do their own thing. And that's what, how you spread the goodness. I, Joanna and Chris, I think that you've just been enrolled in a um, travel, Sammy traveling up. exhibit. Yeah. Um, and I, I think there's something to that as well, which is really, I want to underline uh, to what you're doing, Catherine, and what you're doing, Madeline, is that, you know, these disasters don't fit neatly into time. Into time. There'll be people suffering the mental health effects of this disaster for the rest of their lives. And and so each of these projects, that's what I was trying to say earlier, and you said it better than I did, you know, just not waiting around for a final say on what this meant, but let's connect through it. Um, that's important. We're almost up on time. I want to give each person a, just a, a last chance to tell us anything about um, maybe how the project has changed you, what's coming up for you in the near term with the project. And obviously it goes without saying, I'm gonna to need to bring each of you back in 2021 to give us an update on the on the project as well. But Joanna, let me bring you in first on this, just a kind of a final word before we close out. Well, thanks Scott for having me. I, um, I, I didn't know really what I was getting myself into with this project and you all may feel similarly, but um, I think it's really been uh, a special experience for me to find like-minded people that want to treasure the memories of those lost and um, and collectively mourn. And I'm just really um, heartened by the response to all of these projects. Thanks, Joanna. Chris. So, thank you all. Sure. Um, you know, I, I don't like to. I like to like like um, like Madeline said. I like to talk about um, people, um, not numbers. But I, I just want to share a very sobering number, which is that, you know, the scale of the pandemic is so severe that in the course of this conversation, you know, sixty people have lost their lives, twenty five hundred um, have been diagnosed with COVID, of which about eight hundred are going to have serious, um, you know, after effects, and so. 
this is ongoing um, and we're all in this um, for, for the long term, um, but it's on all of us to, to do what we can to, to help make this better. And so, you know, for those of, you know, wearing masks, social distancing, um, you know, doing virtual Thanksgiving this year so that you can have Thanksgiving in person um, next year. Um, what we're working on now, um, we're running a, a holiday gift drive um, for kids uh, who um, whose parents have been taken by COVID or the family has serious after effects um, and are you know struggling through financial hardships. So we've already connected um, several hundred families working with a, a partner group called Pandemic of Love. Um, and so you can go to our website uh, or our Facebook. We're on Facebook as well to check out information about that. Um, but really just trying to provide that support and we're running weekly um, uh, grief webinars focus on coping with the holidays and how to help people um, through the holidays that we just kicked off um, last night. And of course, continuing our state remembrances, hoping to do um, uh, one in Georgia uh, uh, next month. Um, and what people can do, you know, they can go to the website that you just popped up there. It's like, we're, you know, um, I don't have to say it, um, but you can, we have stories on there, read a story, share a story, um, help people in your community. Um, the scale of this is so awful that so that I forget the number, but it's, it's I think it's around 60% or some staggering number. I personally know someone who's been impacted. Um, but share a story of, of someone you know. Um, go to our website and share a story of someone who has um, has shared their story and um, and help people understand what this is costing us every day, every minute, um, so that we can resolve to, to end it um, as quickly as possible. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. And I'm just going to put back up um, self people make sure they make a note of this, covidsurvivorsforchange.org to check out that project that Chris Kotcher has been talking about. And then uh, Joanna Hutchinson's project, uh, 100,000 folds, 100, the number thousand written out, folds.com. And I wanna give the last word to Madeline and to Catherine, um, just what should we be watching for with the quilt project in the next few months and how can we stay tuned to what you're doing? Well, the quilt project, as I said earlier, is always going to be growing. Um, so in the future, it's still going to be growing. It's going to always be growing. We're still collecting squares. It's, it's going to be a continuous project, and it's going to keep on growing. And how can people send you squares? How can people get in touch with you? Well, um, we have a website where we, ha we have a place where you have all the um, instructions, all the requirements, and it's also a place where you can contact us. So um, that's where you can go to uh, find out exactly what um, your, how like how big your square could your, um, how big your square should be um, the requirement um, what some ideas and also can be questions um, there's there's a contact um, section so you can go there once you give the name okay yes. so this is at covidquilt2020.com yes. And everybody has got to go and check out this website because there we can actually see a picture of you doing the quilting, right? Yes. That's great. So the last thing I, I guess I would say is, is I just hope as we enter Thanksgiving week, we all just love each other a bit harder and we take care of each other. If we do that, you know, we'll go a long way. Remember we're all in this together. I want to remind everybody that you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls every weekday, 5 p.m. Eastern time on Tuesday. I'll be back uh, with a discussion with Yansil Kang, who I've had on before, and Halam Steven, and they're going to be talking to us about technology and digital surveillance technologies 
uh, to deal with the pandemic in Asia. So please do join me for that on Tuesday. And I just want to thank my guests today, um, Madeline Fugey, Catherine Fugey, Joanna Hutchinson, and Chris Kotcher for their time, their creativity, their dedication, and just the inspiration that you're providing to people right now and their opportunities to cope um, with what's happening. Thank you all so much and happy Thanksgiving. Thank you, Scott. Happy Thanksgiving. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you on Tuesday, five o'clock.